Welcome to episode 5 of Super Entertainment Presents, the television crossover universe on the Grand Gignol Network. Coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. In the studio tonight, we have Crazy Ivan Shabosky, convention panelist and lover of cheese. And via Skype, James Boyachuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions. And I am Robert Ronsky Jr., author of the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia. We are the TVCU crew. The Television Crossover Universe is a shared fictional reality in which television series, films, comics, novels, video games, and more are demonstrated to coexist through crossover connections. More on the TVCU concept can be found at televisioncrossoveruniverse.com, in our Facebook forum, in our series of books, and now this podcast. This podcast, though, goes beyond the TVCU by bringing in guests whose work relates to crossovers and expands shared realities. All right, so we got Ivan and James with us tonight. Uh, let's start with our uh, shameless plugging segment. Ivan, you got any shameless plugging for today? Nothing really, but I just want to comment how I think it's very, very fitting that I get higher billing as the lover of cheese than the guy who is an actual publisher. <laughs> Uh, I yeah. mean, I don't know. Cheese is one of the necessary things for life. Books are a luxury, so I can. I'm fine with that. I'm fine. Okay. With that. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right, James. How about you? Anything to plug this week? All right. Make Coming sure it's shameless. In... Okay. <laughs> I am as shameless as possible. In five days, you can get the first of our Sherlock Holmes novel series. That is still. Oh, God, I'm blanking on the title. I am a genius. The Curious Case of the Clockwork Doll by Heidi J. Hewitt. And now, in the back of the book, you will also get a preview of the next book, which has the first chapter of a novella by a new pulp luminary. Someone, even if you haven't read his work, you've heard of him and heard how good it is. So just one more reason to pick up that book. And let's see. And within one to two weeks, we're going to be releasing the first of Nicole Petit's Scarlet Chase novels, The Dragon Lord's Secretary. And that is also chock full of crossovers. Now, you mentioned that in one to two weeks. Let's say I'm not listening to this at the same time I'm recording it. When, what would be a target <laughs> date for that? Sometime in the distant past, the sands have already obscured it. But I'm sure you can still find the book available on Amazon. Unless you're after the thermonuclear war, then I'm sorry. You missed your chance. Those EMPs are going to be wicked vicious to Amazon, yes. All right. Is that it, James? That's all for now. All right. Um, For my shameless plug of the week, um, I have a little story to go with it. Um, So January 10th uh, was the fifth year anniversary of the uh, Intelligent Crossover Universe website. Um, And... I'm doing something a little little special. Every year I try to do something different to, to, to the anniversary. But it's been five years. And uh, so f- five years ago, I was part of another discussion group. And uh, it was a shared reality discussion group. Um, not so much into, uh, you know, some of the things I wanted to talk about. Television crossovers. <laughs> yeah. So uh, people were throwing out different crossovers that could be connected to this group, you know, and I threw out Hannah Montana and, uh, I'm no longer allowed in that group, uh, totally unrelated, I'm sure. But, uh, I created the television crossover universe website because I wanted to talk about television crossovers and, uh, and Hannah Montana, like Hannah Montana. But then when I started the television crossover universe website, I, I realized I really had no interest in actually talking about Hannah Montana. Um, so I never did it. 
But five years has passed, and it's been bugging me that 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 topic of Hannah Montana was why I started the website. So um, at, at the time of uh, that you're listening to this, if you go to our website, you will find a wonderful uh, crossover chronology covering not only Hannah Montana, but the entire Disney live-action sitcom universe. Uh, hopefully, it will beat out My Little Pony. We'll see. <laughs> There's just um, one question. How yeah. afraid do we need to be of the 10-year anniversary? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's when we do the all-naked episode. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Rob and I will be sitting on plastic <laughs> chair covers because they won't even let us into the studio. Yeah. By that point, I'll have been kicked out of the television crossover universe, <laughs> and we'll have to start something even worse, uh, action figure crossover universe or something. Oh, don't, don't even go there. <laughs> There's web pages you do not want to see that relate to that. Yeah, rule 34. <laughs> Anyways, um, so that's my shameless plug for the week. Uh, so we're going to head to commercial, and when we come back, we will have MJ Starling as our guest. We'll be right back. All right, we are back. James, would you like to introduce our guest? Absolutely. I am really excited for tonight's episode. We have MJ Starling, and he has been all over the place. He is the host of two different podcasts, the Writer Collider podcast and the, I'm going to butcher this name to all hell, Skit Canady Six Pack podcast. He's also had fiction appear at Apex Magazine, Reflections Edge, and AE, the Canadian Science Fiction Review. But tonight we're going to be talking to him about William Hope Hodgson's Paranormal Detective Karnacki, the Ghost Finder. And instead of just writing a normal pastiche like most people will be talking to did, he took it to the next level and brought Karnacki to the stage in a what I really wish I could have made it to see, but a stage show extravaganza. Let's call it that. And he had a really unique way of performing it, where instead of having a full cast and full stage play, he only had two actors, if, correct me if I'm wrong, two actors, and very limited stage dressing. So that things are moving in and out, back and forth, as Karnacki tells his story. This has also been published in Sam Gafford's wonderful collection, Karnacki, The New Adventures. Now, turning over to you, MJ. Let's just start with you. How did you get into all of these different venues of writing, and more particularly into working with the theater? Um, well, I, it's, it, that was my degree, um, I studied uh, I studied drama and creative writing at the University of London, so that's that's kind of my background. Um, is to, so I studied prose and theatre in that course. Um, so that's that's what I'm kind of trained in. So when I come up with an idea for something, the the first question is kind of always it, it almost before what is the story? It's is this going to be a a prose piece or is this going to go on the stage? Um, I've done a the ghost audience with the ghost finder, the Karnaki show has been um, adapted for the radio as well. So um, kind of prose drama. It's uh, that's all, all my field. Okay. And how did you discover Karnaki? And then how did you bring this play into production? So I actually discovered Karnaki through the, the podcastle podcast. It's one of the, the escape po escape artists network uh, short story podcasts. 
so they do they do some reprints and then they do some out of copyright work as well so they they podcasted the whistling room which is one of the sort of the the original six karnaki stories from the idler um and i remember i listened to that on sort of uh, on my way back from i was actually working as a, a theater reviewer at the time and i was heading back from a theater in croydon waiting waiting for the bus in sort of freezing cold south london listening to this spooky story about the the haunted room i still think the whistling room is one of his best one of the best karnaki stories um and from there i just kind of i hunted all the all the rest of them down um obviously there, there's the six that are that were originally published in the idler that were con- collected as karnaki the ghost finder which are reasonably easy to get your get your hands on they're on project gutenberg and they're in various various other places and then the the other three, which I didn't actually find out about, I didn't find out that they existed for for a good few months after that, um, which I don't think were ever collected. Which uh, the only place I ever found them was on um, Forgotten Futures, which is a a role playing game setting, mm. which uses some Karnaki elements, uh, some Hodgson elements in their role playing setting. So they publish all they have all the stories published on their website. Um, uh, it, it turned out to be partly because of some, it, the copyright situation with Hodgson is a little bit weird over here in the UK. The the six from the Idler are uh, out of copyright. And then the final three, the Hog, the Haunted Javi and the Find, are actually technically still in copyright. Um, uh, so they're a little bit harder to get hold of. And the, the right situation over whether you can adapt them is a bit trickier. Uh, but yeah, so I, I kind of hunted all the stories down from there, um, in, almost immediately just listening to that, listening to the whistling room the first time, having the fact that I was coming back from uh, from the theatre at the time, I was sort of in that mode, and I sort of immediately saw that like Karnaki in his pentacle doing a vigil in a haunted room is a kind of uh, a perfect uh, st- stage setting. I just I wanted to see that rather than you know reading about it was great, but I wanted to see it as well. And it uh, it seemed to be perfect for for in the round staging as well. So having the audience on all sides and the all the action taking place in that circular pentacle, which was how we did end up actually performing it in the end. Okay. And how did you hit on the idea for the double casting? I'm not sure if this is mentioned in the version of the text that's in Gafford's collection, but I originally read it in your ebook, and that idea was fascinating to me. Yeah, it was it was it was a matter of expedience, really. Um, at least at first, um, the fact that the the company that I was thinking of taking it to, um, Blackshaw Theatre, who are a, a South London-based theatre company, um, who I've worked with a fair bit um they they tend to go for quite small spaces and they they were at the they're, they're bigger now but at the time they were quite a small theater company and it just sort of it helps to limit the number of people you're using but also i i i like the possibilities of that uh, the kind of playing with the fact that all of Karnaki's stories are recounted they're all that all the stories have that framing device of Karnaki telling his uh, his little cabal of friends around the fire with whiskey and cigars about his adventures and i wanted to keep some version of that framing device which meant that it was it was going to be um 
to some extent presented as uh, uh, playing with the idea of storytelling, um, which works perfectly with theatre as well. So the idea that uh, as Karnaki relates this to Dodgson, Dodgson becomes the other characters. Uh, so I actually, I, I kind of left it open. I tried to leave it open anyway to, to any director wanting to put it on. You could perform it with, it's got four characters altogether. Mm. You could perform it with a full cast of four. Um, but I wanted, I made sure that there were only ever two characters on stage at the, at the same time because I wanted that option of um, uh, just creating that weird space where the audience isn't quite sure what's real and what's not by having one character constantly change who they are. And also it, this become, it becomes an element of the story as well that um, the, the particular uh, supernatural or abnatural rather haunting that Karnaki is investigating in this story is causing him to be unsure of what's real and what's not. And I wanted the audience to have that a, a little bit of that experience as well. That does sound like a great element to have. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it worked really well. I, uh, partly because we, we got a fantastic cast for that, uh, that first performance or rather the, the only performances it, it was on, um, it was premiered at the Wandsworth arts festival. Wandsworth is a, a South London borough um, premiered at their arts festival, uh, April, 2013, um, and it was revived the same year at the London Horror Festival in sort of October that year with the same cast both times. Um, Alexander Pankhurst as Karnaki, uh, Caridwin Smith as uh, the as Dodgson and the two Allenbys, the mother and daughter. And it, I think it's <laughs> it's sort of it demands different things of the two performers. It demands that obviously they're, they're both pretty much on stage for the entire production, which I think right. it runs generally at about 75 minutes um Karnaki has to uh he's got to master a lot of those um speeches and exp uh, sort of chewy explanations of how things are working um and be sort of constantly on and then it demands the other performer um Caridwin Smith in this case uh to absolutely on a dime switch between characters and sort of be and make those three different characters distinct as well while still showing that there is some similarity between the mother and daughter it's hmm. <laughs> i didn't make it easy for anybody no changing characters constantly that's really challenging yeah i believe yeah. you had some questions rob um yeah so so your play takes place in um in lovecraft's dreamlands is, is that correct yeah, so um, specifically, uh, I was drawing on the uh, Dreams in the Witch House mm -hmm. uh, with where um, uh, Walter Gilman keeps falling through. There's an abyss that he describes that he, he fall. He, his dreams always start with falling through the abyss and uh, eventually he will sort of come through that abyss and into uh, into a fantastical city. Um and I, I sort of I read that in reasonably close succession with uh, Hodgson's The Hog, mm -hmm. which is the the Karnaki story of the the nine canonical ones, where he lays out his uh, Karnaki lays out his whole cosmology at the end, right? Um, his his theory of emanations, um, and I, it just seemed it seemed like kind of a gimme. It seemed like um, a crossover waiting to happen. I was right. kind of astonished that nobody had really done it <laughs> before. The, the idea that both Hodgson and Lovecraft seem to have that 
um, these outer monstrosities, elder gods, whatever you want to, you know, whatever each one wants to call them, these things are not necessarily kind of in another dimension, but but across the far reaches of space. Um, so I felt like there was there was an easy crossover there, um, and Lovecraft being out of copyright as well, I sort of I, sort of st- I just stole some imagery. It was me right. being la- lazy as much as anything. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so I, first of all, I want to say you're, you're the first playwright we've had on the show, um, which I think classes us up a bit. <laughs> and we can use that. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> yes. Well, um, happy to help. Um, do you have any other plays out there that our listeners might be interested in? I don't actually know. Um, I, I work, I do end up working mostly in prose and mm. most, mostly, um, most of the work that I've, I think you, you ended up listing it all. Like I'm not hugely prolific. Right. Um, I have a day job that I have to work around. Mm. Um, so most most of my published work is uh, short stories. Do you, um, do you prefer the short stories to the to the plays? Or do you like? I I like the feeling of finishing them. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm I'm constant. I'm always working on longer stuff. So right. I've got I've got the um, the the novel of doom, which is which is always uh, the the project that I keep going back to after each sort of shorter thing. Uh, which I'm determined to actually finish this year, uh, or at least finish my final edit pass on. Um, but sometimes you need you need that you need that um, adrenaline hit of actually writing the end on something, and obviously that's always easier with shorter work. Uh, I, I do find I do find that with plays as well that they are quicker to write than than prose works of similar kind of magnitude. Well, you know, a great motivator for finishing your novel would be to throw out some spoilers here, so that so that so that your listeners are eagerly here are eagerly waiting. And if they're well, exclusives, that's a plus too. You'll yeah, feel that's better. right. You've heard it here Much first. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I can give you the elevator pitch, which I don't think I've mm-hmm. ever done on the record, which which might Go help. For it. It's um, it's a, a a novel in the structure of a pop of a three minute three and a half minute pop song. Mm-hmm. So. Instead of part one, part two, it's uh, intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, uh, solo, outro, um, and the the story or the idea behind it is it's um, that idea that having a a person that you can't forget or or a relationship you're not over is the same kind of feeling as having a song stuck in your head. Mm. Um, so it, it has this character who is uh, because of an experience he has a song stuck in his head basically forever. But this also gives him a kind of he he develops the kind of empathic ability to be to hear the songs playing in other people's heads, and he can kind of uh, that kind of helps him in his uh, uh, personal relationships. But the it is the story of him trying to get over this person, get this song out of his head, the various and it, so there's the the magical element to it too that it's also like being under a curse. So it's how do you break the curse? How do you kill the earworm? How do you get over that person and move on with your life. That sounds I'm really, really excited cool. for this now. Yeah. 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 I'm, th- I'm think the plan at the moment is to it, like, I have a, I've been through a couple of drafts of it. Um, and it just, it just needs a really good tightening up now and maybe a couple of, couple of bits rewriting. Um, and the plan is then to serialize it because it sort of falls mm-hmm. quite easily into that format. Okay. Uh, so, so a lot of our fans, a lot of our listeners, are are, are crossover fans. Uh, any other work out there that uh, have any crossovers that people might be interested in checking out? 
I don't think so. No, um, the the Karnaki play was was really my my only currently published uh, work in an existing uh, universe or, or setting. Okay. I, you know, I, I tend to try to to do original stuff uh, where whenever I can. Um, it's not a crossover, but the the other main thing that I'm working on at the moment is I'm doing a, um, a, a script doctoring passed on an, uh, an adaptation. Another This is other, other stage work mm-hmm. um, on an adaptation of Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast or the, the first book of it. Okay. Um, so this is a show that's been on okay. the London stage before a few years ago. Same same theatre company, Blackshaw. Um, but that was, I think it was their first production um, and the script was a bit big. I think it ran at a good three and a half hours. Um so I'm, I've been brought in to kind of try and bring it down to a, a crisp 90 minutes for another run later in the year in November. Oh, very wow. cool. Very I cool. would have never thought that, that would even be possible for a stage adaption. <laughs> Three hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a difficult one. It, I mean, it's it, there's so many difficulties with that because it's it's the like, the first two Gormenghast books aren't really two books. It's one story. So just putting the first one on the stage, it really does leave it kind of hanging. And it's, it's been a quite a challenge to, um, or, or rather it was quite a challenge for the original writers to, to find a, an ending that was satisfying for the people in the theater. Then that wasn't just, please come and see where, see our show when we eventually adapt the second one. Um, but it, it's quite, it's worked quite well. It's, it's framed as a tragedy, so it doesn't matter quite so much that it ends on a, on a kind of a low note. That helps. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not a crossover, but it is it is work in an existing universe at least. Cool. Well your idea about the novel sounds like a media crossover. It's yeah. music yeah. as a novel. Yeah. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> we'll see if it come we'll see if it works. We'll see if it actually uh comes off as a concept. Uh, this is uh, partly why it's taking so long is constantly going backwards and forwards on will this actually work because people are so you know, everybody's so tuned into the the three act structure of storytelling, um, uh, the beginning, middle, and end. And this isn't—it's not going to end up really having a beginning, middle, and end because the the verse sections and the chorus sections have to mirror each other to some extent. So there's a lot of repetition. Plus, they're uh, going to cut the epilogue off and the radio edit anyway. That is absolutely true. Yeah. Right. And and maybe the long intro as well. Yeah. And all the swears. What? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well. Okay. Um, so, so um, I wanted to ask um, uh, any other projects you'd like to plug? Current ones, new ones, upcoming ones? Um, I, th- I think I've talked about everything that, that is kind of in a state. I've, I've got a couple, I've got other things that are kind of out being read by editors that may be published one day in some form. So I finished a, I finished a couple of short stories and a novella last year, uh, which are all out with various magazines or publishers uh, being read. So, I mean, you are you asked earlier how do how do I get into the the venues I've got into, and it right. is just plugging away by submitting through people's open submission open submissions portals. Um, <laughs> I don't have any kind of editor contacts to to call on. I'm I'm unagented at the moment, mm-hmm. at least. Um, so it's just a case of writing stuff. I mean, the, it, it, that gives me the freedom to 
write what on whatever I want. Right. You know, I'm not writing on anybody's commission. I'll write what I feel like writing and then think about, oh God, where am I going to sell this? <laughs> Who's actually going to buy this? Right. I get that. I get that. <laughs> um, all right. And where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, so my, uh, everything is linked off my main website, which is mjstarling.com. Um, and I'm on uh, mo- the places you can find me most often uh, are Twitter, where I'm at mjstarling, and Tumblr, where I'm mjstarling.tumblr.com. So those are the main places I hang out. Cool. Okay, cool. All right. Well, MJ, thank you for being on our show. It was great to have you. Calling, Thanks very much for having me. Sorry, I don't do a lot of crossovers. No, 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 no. That's all right. You know, we've been we've been on a Karnacki theme. Like every every other um, author we've had has written about Karnacki. Um, and, yeah, uh, I, I heard the last episode, and I was kind of intimidated. I was going, I I don't have nearly the depth of Karnacki knowledge that these people do. Oh no, no, like no the worries. nine stories. No worries. We we want we we want our listeners to hear hear about you so they can continue to read your work. And uh, you know, I, I wish I, I wish somebody would pick up one of your plays and uh, here, you know, in the states, so that <laughs> you know we. Can... Yeah, I know because I, I I know that was because I was in touch with Sam Gafford a lot, mm. um, who published the anthology, published the play in the anthology, and who was obviously he's a, a big Hodgson scholar. Um, he was very excited about it, and he was pretty gutted that there was no performance of it in the states. But that that's why uh, you mentioned the ebook earlier. That's free to download off my site that's got the full play text some kind of some dvd extras there's an interview in there and some director's notes from ellie pickin who directed the run um it's got the the six karnaki stories i'm allowed to reprint (laughs) right right um and some you know some other bits and pieces and the, the point of making that available for free on the site is that people can read it and then maybe get in touch with me about the rights if they feel like performing it it's an easy it's an easy show to do on a like an, a really fringy venues it's been on so the london horror festival run was on basically in a room above a pub right um <laughs> and the the theater company that put it on they managed to um they condensed the, the whole thing basically piled into Konaki's instrument trunk so all the props the costumes a good deal of the set basically only the electric pentacle didn't fit in there <laughs> so it, like they 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 transported it on the on the London Underground. Like they didn't have to hire a van to transport it or anything. Convenient. Yeah, very. <laughs> so, you know, if people want to put it on. It's it's definitely doable for small companies as long as you you find your your two actors that can handle it. Yeah, it'd be a great play to play in uh, Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, well. and in the meantime, the the next best thing is the radio adaptation, which is on my SoundCloud page, okay. which is SoundCloud.com/slash/MJStarling. Um, which has all the all the, the the guy who designed the sound for the stage show designed the sound. He we reused his sound for the um, radio version, so oh. it's the ne- the nearest thing you can get to the stage version without actually being there. Excellent. I didn't know that existed. I need to check that out. Yeah, I oh, did. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome sauce. Uh- <laughs> Thanks for uh, that. Yeah. Uh, well. Th- Thanks again for being with us, MJ. Um, it was a pleasure to have you. Um, and w- we hope that you would come on our show to plug anything you want at any time um, because it was a pleasure having you. 
Thanks very uh, much. I'll take you up on that. Sure. Please do. Yeah, pl- yeah please do. <laughs> and um, all right, we're going to go to a commercial. And then when we come back, we're going to talk crossovers. And we are back with the Intelligent Crossover Universe. And uh, every once in a while, we try to keep with the theme of the show and talk about crossovers um, and just just riff on it. Uh, we did that a, a few weeks back. Um, so I wanted to start um, by talking about uh, Hot Tub Time Machine. Um, I, I uh, watched the second... That's a movie for those of you who've never heard of it. Yeah, I, so I really enjoyed the first one. Um, I watched the second one today because it was free on Hulu, and they suggested it to me. Um, so Hot Tub Time Machine is connected to the television crossover universe, um, through a number of crossovers, actually. Um, first of all, in in the story, um, the main actor, the one who Jason is, Bateman. No, no, but um, he refused to show for the second movie. Um, but they kept showing his picture, like like the shameless like stock footage pictures. Um, I can't think of his name now. James, do you know who I'm talking about? He was a, a big actor in the '80s. And, um, and you're not talking about Chevy Chase, are you? No, he no. He was in the first one too. No, no. The, it's the guy who was in Better Off Dead. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, John Cusack. Yeah, John Cusack. Yes. Oh. So, in in Hot Tub Time Machine, when he's at the ski resort, um, you hear the kid from the the paper route from Better Off Dead yell two dollars to John Cusack's character in uh, in Hot Tub Time Machine. So there, there, there is a blatant crossover slash homage um, there. But um, Hot Tub Time Machine was popular enough to get referenced other places um, in the in the Star Trek Legion of Superheroes crossover comic book, comic by, book by by Chris Roberson. Um, they had captured a whole bunch of different time travel devices, and there's like this big two page splash of all these devices, and the Hot Tub Time Machine is one of those devices um making that part of the same universe as star trek which is the television crossover universe for our purposes and then it's also mentioned in passing in the time traveler survival guide yes yes so you create a wormhole uh mentions the hot tub time machine so that cemented it um now clearly the alternate universe that they created from time traveling um, is part of the larger television crossover multiverse. Um, yeah, and, so there's no Lugal in the regular TVCU. Right, right, right. That creates a divergent timeline. Now, in Hot Tub Time Machine 2, they ex- they actually expand on that and show that they there is a multiverse out there being created from all their time travel experiments. Every, t- every time they, they screw up time, it creates... And they say, like Fringe... <laughs> they're, they're, you know, um, uh, so so it it actually supports the television crossover universe um, theory um, in that aspect. Now, speaking of Chevy Chase, though, there was a um, sort of crossover in that um, uh, when when Chevy Chase's character in Hot Tub Time Machine Two um, teleports himself out of out of there when he's about to get hit by a golf club, he does so by going na 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 
you know, which is like a, Ty from like Caddyshack. Ty from Caddyshack, um, implying that he could be the same character, the same character Ty from Caddyshack, um, could be. I there's nothing that could contradict it. So it's well, Caddyshack possible. two and Hot Tub Time Machine two were both really bad movies. So there I you suppose go. There is that connection. <laughs> so you know, um, part of what we do at the Television Crossover Universe is talk about crossovers that bring in stuff we don't like. Oftentimes, <laughs> bring in really bad stuff because we're not about uh, whether we like something or not, but whether there's a valid crossover connection. So there you go, Hot Tub Time Machine two. Strongly part of the part of the television crossover multiverse. Maybe that should be our catchphrase. Includes everything you hate. <laughs> Check out the Hannah Montana blog post. We're not just bronies anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, uh, um, I just had to mention that because I did happen to see that today, and um, it was fresh in my head. Um, so I want to talk about um, something that's very controversial in our discussion group, and that's Arrow and the Arrowverse and the DC Cinematic Universe um, and how things are either connected or they're not connected or they're connected well, again. they're not connected. That's simple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, wait, wait. This is a crossover discussion. We can't say that. Well, and and even even taking out, I, I know in the in the website I put Arrow in the TVCU four. I think as the multiverse goes, TVCU one is the main universe, two, three, four. Uh, but even just considering as the Arrowverse, you know, as a separate separate thing. Um, so it's got the Flash now, and it's got Constantine, which they finally pulled in. I had heard that Supergirl was going to cross over with the Flash in May. And now but I read they it. They said it's not happening, and yeah, who knows? We'll see what they do with it. Yeah, so so it's in, it's not in, it's in again, it's not in again. Well, if they brought in Supergirl, then that would bring in their version of the Martian Manhunter and the yeah. Red Tornado, and of course Superman. Yeah. And, well, and, there's one nice thing about Legends of Tomorrow and all of these alternate futures. It means the Arrowverse isn't going to be ending in the Walking Dead timeline because they had Walter White's special meth, which is also in Walking Dead. So oh. they've just narrowly avoided a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> right. Whew. Right. Now, if they could just cross over with iZombie. <laughs> Not impossible. They're both DC. Right, right. But um, it, 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 it's frustrating because they, they're, you know, they're going to wait till they cancel Supergirl. And then make it part of the Arrowverse? Is that their plan? Well, That's... Flash already has a big Earth 2 component going on on that show. If they do a crossover with Supergirl, they can always make it a an alternate reality crossover so that nobody has to say we share a planet Earth. Right, right. But um, they, did, they did introduce an element that showed that not all metahumans are from Central City. Um, in, in one episode, they had a of Arrow. They had a metahuman that was from Central City, but then they found out he wasn't in Central City at the time of that big explosion that created all the metahumans. And then they just left it as like, "How did that happen?" There's other metahumans out there, and then they never spoke of it again. So I assume they did it on purpose to kind of introduce that element that uh, um, they're 
there are other things out there. Well, obviously, Vandal Savage is going to be the Legends of Tomorrow big bad, so right. he's not from Central City. Right, 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 right. He he. Ha- they kind of stuck with the whole meteorite thing, which which I thought was pretty cool for the Vandal Savage. Origin. What is it with meteorites creating superhumans anyway? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that- I licked a meteorite. I didn't get anything out of it except a really bad taste because it was kind of dusty. Spe- speaking of speaking of which, um, in the Arrow Flash crossover from this past season, um, um, they they went to the Smallville farmhouse, though it was a Central City farmhouse. But they did make mention of um, uh, it was some kind of reference, like this looks familiar, or 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 like like. I don't know. There was something about it that I can't remember the exact quote now, but they mentioned something that was like, this is a Smallville setting, like, you know. Right. Yeah, to let, you know, they wanted to nod to their previous CW series. So the whole wink and a nod to the fourth wall, but definitely not a crossover. But, not, but definitely not a no. crossover unless unless the whole farm got <laughs> moved. Well, if Central City is Kansas City, and Smallville's in Kansas, right? Then of course the version of Metropolis from Smallville has to go somewhere too. Now I feel that in the Arrowverse, Central City is on the West Coast. I feel like all all the sh- cities that they've shown that um, Coast City is on the West Coast. Clearly, Los Angeles. I think didn't they have a map in one of the episodes though that suggested Central City was Chicago? Really? I, I thought I remember that. Oh, that seems so weird, and uh, I don't I don't know because it seems like a place where it, it should like I, I get the flash can move fast, but for the other people they like travel back and forth so easily. Yeah, it takes at it's, least a day to you know make that trip. Yeah, especially if you're walking. I would. Yeah, walk. because it, it seems like it seems like um, um, Star City, as it's now being called. Uh, as it's more faithful to the comics now is um is like in the Pacific Northwest, which is where it was in the um in the comics at least, at least at least post crisis yeah yeah so yeah <laughs> I, I have no idea i just uh, I just presume that that um you know it was just like a few hours away driving um from central to to star, but I could be wrong. On the, on that one, well, they've never suggested out loud that it's in the middle of the country, other than with the name Central City. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure there was a map in an episode of The Flash that made it look like it was up there. All right, near the Great Lakes. If anybody can find a screenshot of that, post it to our um, Facebook forum, uh, Television Crossover Universe Facebook forum. We would uh, really appreciate that. And then, of course, there's National City on Supergirl, right. which also has a very West Coast vibe to it. Yeah, that seems to be like more of an L.A. type 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 city, um, National City. It's crazy. National City had nothing to do with Supergirl in the comics, but it is. Uh, but it it was like Mister Terrific's home city, and yet Mister Terrific is on Arrow. Now, so <laughs> and uh, I gotta say, I yeah, the, the the 
the DC Cinematic Universe, um, I, I, I had always hoped would somehow eventually connect to the Arrowverse, like at least with a, a multiversal thing. But now that they've introduced the Flash of Two Worlds thing, I feel like that's probably not going to happen. DC Cinematic Universe just confuses me. I mean, there's a lot of things that could confuse me, but it's like they always want to distance themselves from success. Because within a couple weeks of the Flash TV show coming out and being this huge ratings hit, they announced, no, no, we're having a different Flash in the movies. I mean, you can do that. You can do it. That's fine. But why do you want to immediately distance yourself from your own success? It seems like they they saw what Marvel was doing and they said – we want to do that too because they're making money, but how can we make it worse? <laughs> <laughs> well, they've already managed to make most of their movies worse. Yeah, I mean, who even remembers Steel? They're like, yeah, they're like Arrow was really popular. Let's not do that for the movies. The Flash show was really popular. How can we compete with ourselves? <laughs> I don't think it's so much competing as they're seeing television and cinema as completely different mediums that don't share anything. And they say, well, Marvel has tied their Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agent Peggy Carter into their cinematic universe. But because of that, if you don't watch the TV shows, you miss stuff in the movies. And that actually has happened. I know people who saw Age of Ultron that didn't understand some of the stuff because of it being referenced in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. That actually raises a good point because um, a lot of people who watch superhero movies are are the type of people who just watch action movies, but they don't necessarily watch superhero shows or comic book shows. Right, because they're not necessarily into the major continuity. They're into seeing action movies. Right, seeing a big blockbuster in 3D. This is really where... Marvel and DC both need to copy off of what Japanese, yeah, what Japanese, what Japan has done with their Kamen Rider and Super Sentai movies. Even though the movies and the shows share a continuity, they have different plot threads. So the movies only have one plot thread from movie to movie, and the shows have their own separate plot threads, but the same characters, actors, and continuity. It's much neater, and people don't miss things if they only watch one or the other. The Netflix is the ones who do it like really well because both Daredevil and Jessica Jones tie into the Marvel cinematic universe, but in a way that if you didn't ever watch anything to do with any other Marvel cinematic thing at all, you could still enjoy those shows, but they throw in those little Easter eggs for the people who, who did see the other stuff like, Oh my God! They're talking about the Battle of New York and Daredevil. They're you know they're talking about that in Jessica Jones, but they do it in such a subtle way that it would you just know oh there was some kind of big battle in New York, but you don't have to have seen the movies or even care about the movies at all. But it is there so that it does fit together, unlike the DC projects where right. so many things contradict each other. Yeah, and you know I wouldn't even care if it was separate universes. Except that they're repeating the same characters. When I say they're competing, like having two versions of Barry Allen as the Flash. Yeah. You know, and and the thing is, I guarantee the TV show is going to be superior to the movie. 
Uh, You're only saying that because it's been true in every case so far. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I'm even still... Gotham is actually better than the last two Batman movies we got. <laughs> right. As much as I loved The Dark Knight, Gotham is better. Yeah, Gotham is better. <laughs> I'm still in shock at their casting for the movie Flash. Who looks at Ezra Miller and thinks, you, you person, I can't tell if you're a man or a woman or elderly or a child, you are the Flash. See, 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 and that's the thing. That, that's what upsets me because Ezra Miller is going to become the Flash. Like, uh, the television Flash will just be that other guy playing the Flash because the movie, more, more people in America will know the movie than they will the show. And that that hurts me. <laughs> that really hurts me because the show is just so so excellent, and I I, I feel so bad because <laughs> uh, Justin Gastanis, I think that's how you pronounce it, is doing an excellent job as the Flash, and uh, and uh, but the thing is, the shows like get like smaller act, you know, lesser known actors to play the characters and they really embody those characters. And then the movies are like, who can we get? Who's a big name person? Well, he doesn't really seem like, no, it doesn't matter. He's a big name actor. That's all we care about. We're getting Will Smith to play Deadshot. (laughs) 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 You know, you know, well, have you seen a picture of Floyd Lawton? It doesn't matter. It's Will Smith. People will watch it because it's Will Smith, but they're right. People will watch because it's right, Smith. right, and that's the thing. Maybe the, remember After about, Earth, the movie that died after one yeah. day in theaters. It's yeah, but it's also going to have Harley Quinn and the Joker in it, so people will watch it. Yes, I'm this not sure true. everybody's going to go see it because they want to see Leto as the Joker. Enough pictures have already been released. Yeah. Kind of raise some red flags. Yeah, but uh, but if that's the thing. The, the movies are about Hollywood. You know, the bunch of people who know nothing about comics saying, how can we make money? And it seems like the TV shows are written by people who have actually said, hey, I've read comic books. I bet I could adapt this to <laughs> something else. Or at the else. very least, they say, we want to give people something they can grab onto and want to tune in again and again. With the movies, if it doesn't bring people back, they don't care because the first movie is the only thing they're making, and that's their money right now. That's right. What's yeah. so different between DC's policy with the movies and Marvel's policy with the movies? We'll make Green Lantern and we'll get people to come watch it. And then if it sucks, well, we got you to pay to watch the first one. We know we won't get you to watch the yeah, second one. They made one. their money on Green we'll, Lantern. We'll just abandon it. <laughs> I'm not sure they made their money on Watchmen, which is a shame because that was a good movie. That was an excellent movie. Watchmen, like, they copied the, the comic almost frame for frame in, in such a beautiful artistic manner and even though they changed the ending drastically i i understood why it made sense right right that they made the one super being into the artificial big bad just to give someone something to rally behind to all hate right yeah yeah the spoilers sorry about that yeah the few change yeah feel don't listen to our show if you don't like spoilers. We're really all about spoilers. Although if you haven't seen Watchmen yet, you're probably not going to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's only been 10 years. Yeah. You don't know. And Star Wars, no, never mind. <laughs> I'm not going there. Uh, Trick or Treat Radio did a whole episode about, about Star Wars for anybody who yeah, watched. I couldn't believe it when Boba Fett came back. <laughs> 
And it was Jar Jar Binks underneath the hood. <laughs> All right. Um, but speaking of Marvel movies, once Disney grabbed hold of the reins, you know, they have been the ones that have actually made it all one cohesive, we're going to keep people coming back kind of universe. Yeah. Whereas before that, you know, the, the Ang Lee version of the Hulk, which wasn't a terrible movie, you know, it clearly was never going to have a sequel. Yeah. Daredevil, that was a movie. <laughs> And it got a sequel anyway. I don't understand okay. why. <laughs> so one of the most exciting things about um, Civil War is that General Ross is coming back from Incredible Hulk. Because up to this point, because they had recast Bruce Banner, it seemed like they were starting to like uh, phase out Incredible Hulk as being part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So bringing back the same General Ross, like... Is, is is like an awesome move instead of like trying to recast him or or something like that. I know they kept mentioning the abomination on Agents of Shield all the time to China remind us that that still happened. But it, uh, it's a good move to bring back General Ross, especially since it doesn't look like there's any Hulk sequels um, actually in the works right now. It's unlikely that we'll have another Hulk movie. Yeah, which which is a shame because it seems like every fan is asking for Planet Hulk. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's room in the Marvel Cinematic Universe for Planet Hulk. Yeah. I mean, there's only so many times we can make everything bigger. I I don't want them to make so many super beings in this universe that normal people don't even matter. Yeah. You know, yeah. one thing that I like, uh, and Jessica Jones, uh, spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen it, but you really should see it by now, um, like has a subplot that really deals with what the Marvel Cinematic Universe is like. Like in, in the comics, like every week there's like a major battle like everywhere and like superhero battles are recurring. But, it, it, but if, the, if things are only happening like whenever we see the movies generally – then, then it's it's basically like how we react to like terrorist attacks and stuff. Like, like an alien attack is like a a, a huge traumatic thing, and uh, because of that, um, unfortunately, they can't use mutants. But um, gifted people are um, the world fears and hates them because they blame them. You know, they came about at the same time that all these other things like alien attacks and stuff came. Um, and there's a subplot where somebody tries to kill Jessica Jones as revenge for her her sister dying in uh, the the Battle of New York from the you know first Avengers film, um, and it was really interesting little little subplot there about um, you know the gifted um, people being persecuted, and then they mention that there's a government agency that keeps track of the gifted and sometimes abducts them, which is Agents of Shield. Um, and you know they have similar storylines on Supergirl. Yeah, you know it, it's funny because um, watching Jessica Jones and Supergirl at the same time, um, it was like, wow, this is like the the mirror universe version of Supergirl. It's just like a really dark version of Supergirl. <laughs> just what Jessica Jones really was like, like if Supergirl had just gone really dark. It's <laughs> a fair parallel. Yeah. 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 Uh, my son really wanted to watch the show. And I'm like, no. 
<laughs> Just watch Supergirl. <laughs> All right, so um, we are about out of time, according to my little timer here. Um, so anything anybody wants to say to re- before we wrap up? Yes, one thing. To all our listeners, one of the most helpful things you can do if you like our show is to find us on iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a little review. Reviews are very helpful, yes. Yes, yes, please. Yeah, we haven't gotten a lot of feedback, and we know that people are listening. We would love feedback, uh, if it's positive, because I don't want my feelings hurt. (laughs) (laughs) But you can hurt my feelings, it's okay. Yeah, talk about the other two guys. (laughs) All right, yeah, but please uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, come to our website, TelvinCrossOverUniverse.com. Uh, visit our Facebook forum, which is also called Television Crossover Universe. Um, you know, join in on the fun. Yeah, because um, if you hear something that we mention, you say, hey, I have an opinion on that, you can get us on Facebook, and we will gladly join into discussions about these things. Yes, and when people, like, talk to me enough times about stuff, I tend to involve them in stuff. Um, that's how the whole TVCU crew thing started was people gave me a lot of opinions about what I was writing. And so I said, well, then you write something. And, uh, that's, that's pretty much how our website became a collaborative event. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, when Rob first found me, I was homeless begging for cheese <laughs> on the streets. Yeah. Shouting. Yeah. Shouting. You should write about this crossover. <laughs> He told me to write my own thing, so I wrote my own thing, and now I shower like twice a week. It's awesome. All right. So yeah, please please uh, give us feedback and get involved. Um, so and uh, please join us next week when we'll be talking with author Micah S. Harris. Um, and before we end, I want to thank our sponsor Jim Payton, who hopes his continual support will allow him to eventually meet the Olsen twins. And also Apollo Candy Bars. And a special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music. Thanks to all who listened. Remember, everything happens somewhere.